Hi there. Welcome to Mental Health Professionals Network podcast series. MHPN's aim is to promote and celebrate interdisciplinary collaborative mental health care. Welcome to Transitions, a series of conversations between a GP and a mental health social worker where we share our perspectives on life's changes, the challenges, the gifts, and what we find fascinating and helpful in our personal and our professional lives. I'm Monica Moore, a GP with a special interest in mental health, and with me is my friend Julianne White. And g'day everybody. Yes, I'm a mental health social worker from beautiful, sunny, rural New South Wales. And today we're going to be talking about the transitions that occurred when we have to change jobs or when we lose our job or when we lose our home, um, all of these things that, you know, have come up through uh, being exposed to a pandemic. Um, and it's some, one of the things that's been fascinating because it's been part of our work and we thought it's a very topical thing to talk about. And so what have you noticed? Just uncertainty. Um, lots of people, and I've got lots of clients who have got and, you know, just, and even friends and family that got specific health issues um, and just the uncertainty of what tomorrow will be. And I think we got through the last year pandemic with some certainty, even though it was the new normal. And we came into Christmas with the new normal. Now, remember, we're New South Wales and other states have got other issues. But then now we've got, oh, my God, we don't know if it's going to be tomorrow. Can I travel? Can I do this? Will I be locked down and be stuck somewhere? There's still a heightened sense of uncertainty and it's creeping through everywhere, you know, from the kids going to school. Um, you know, I just feel for those Perth kids that have had their start of school delayed another week. And it's affecting some of the kids I've got in therapy. Um, they're like, oh, well, do we start? or do we not? So, yeah, just uncertainty. And then that's bringing up those all those things around adjustment and, and then that affects mood and food and sleep and all that stuff. So, that's what I'm seeing. What do you notice? What do people come to a GP with? Well, well that's the thing, isn't it? Because, I mean, people come to GPs for all sorts of reasons. But mm. one of the things I think that's been, you know, part of the conversation with, with my colleagues and friends is, is that idea that, you know, the financial burden that, that occurs, you know, the minute you're not sure about your job. And even if you have got a job and you haven't lost your job, like, you know, I have, um, you know, people I know who are in the arts and of course they've lost their livelihood. Um, and it's, it's more, as you say, it's the uncertainty, it's the not knowing, but it's also the day to day, like how are we going to pay our bills? And, you know, as a GP, how can you support, but at the same time, you know, you're running a business, it's very difficult. But I think the thing that stayed with me was how differently people respond. And I was really pondering that question about what makes us respond differently to life's challenges? Um, you know, what is it about? Is it our personality? Like, you know, that, that thing about nature, nurture, you know, like, and, and about our environment and society and all of these sorts of things. Like, what what are your thoughts about, you know, why is it that people have such a different reaction? Look, my, yeah, and I'm a bit like you, I spend a lot of time thinking, you know, why are we seeing such a different level? And my feeling is, and please correct me if, if you think differently, and I don't know, I've not, I've not had this conversation with any of my colleagues yet, but I think it's almost like a trauma reaction. It's been an external force. It's not been something in part of a normal, normal life's journey. It's not part of what we would expect happen. 
how this whole change has been forced onto us by external forces. We have daily updates in the media, so we don't know till we get a briefing. Uh, how do we react today? Well, we've got to wait for a briefing. I think it's new and different. This is not like a normal life course, normal adjustment, normal, normal life change, Monica. And I think what we're seeing is people having this um, sense of almost little T trauma uncertainty. It's just like, because what I'm hearing is a sense of hopelessness, helplessness and loss of control. And they're the three things that I put down as being, you know, sort of that chronic traumatisation reaction that people have, which is like, I just don't get it. Um, I don't know what will happen tomorrow. I can't make plans. I can't see my children. Like that happens in normal day to day. Like, you know, often you don't see your kids and friends for maybe six months, but that could be normal choice as opposed to this is an external force that's been put upon me. What's your thought on that? I've not expressed that out publicly yet. So, gosh, it's sharing a little bit, a lot today. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm. But you're right. I mean, you know, we're, as clinicians, like, you know, as a GP, I'm kind of going, yep, everybody's suffering. I'm suffering. Um, you know, I'm expecting to have that. But then it's more, I'm kind of like surprised at the people who don't have the trauma reaction um, or the people who have the trauma reaction, like where I kind of go, wow, you're seeing it like as something really big and I'm I'm finding it difficult to see it from your perspective. Um, what do I mean? Okay, so I'll, I'll give examples, okay? Um, so... So there's been a lot in the news and and I guess I, I've sort of looked for it as well about the kindness of strangers and the and the support that's been given, especially overseas. And I, I often wonder about what is it about human beings that you you look outside of yourself when you're because normally if we're in distress, we tend to look inward. We tend to become focused on our own distress and how to fix it before we can actually, you know, even know that someone else beside us is distressed. But what is it about some people where that's their, like they're able to kind of stay grounded and centred and, um, and you know, like there's, uh, there are people in Sweden called Anonymous who do this miniature uh, uh, scenes that they install in uh, the windows of, you know, the low-lying windows of cellars in the buildings in Sweden. And it's all for mice, you know, so there's a hairdresser for mice and a record company for mice and a restaurant for mice. It's got all these little details in miniature and it's fascinating and it's like to create joy in the moment when people are really preoccupied. Um, and, and so all of these sorts of things that are happening and, and it, you know, I often wonder like how much of it is genetic? How much of it is like are we born with a certain tendency towards being a bit more outward looking and, and positive or is it all related to, you know, how our, our life experiences and how we've learnt to manage that kind of thing? And Look, I think you're right on all of those. It's probably a huge combination of all of that. I think there's a lot of environmental, yeah, our, our personal traits. Do we cope with change and do we adapt well? So maybe it's mm. about adaptability. Um, whether we've had previous experiences or whether we're in an uncertain phase anyway in our life and in transition and then another transition. I'm wondering whether it's the multiplicity 
of and the ongoingness and uncertainty of the ending that for some people mm. who might have been going through a transition anyway, that this has added another layer of busyness and lack of predictability when they're trying to find a safe landing place anyway, that there's uncertainty to start with and we add another layer that's a bit tricky. I'm wondering, and then there's mm. the personality traits, people that just don't do this well and really like their certainty in life. Because I've got a couple of beautiful young um, mum who's way out, quite isolated, who's a photographer. And she put it out on Facebook that she's doing photos through your window. You know, how did people live their lives through the window? So so bringing the inside out sort of, and she said she had a huge response from people that just wanted her to stand outside their window at the fence and taking photographs of them doing life. So bringing them out and it was just beautiful. And then even in my local community, we had a photographer doing a hallway, uh, a driveway photographs of people standing in their driveway. And um, and that was quite remarkable, the photos that she produced of families. So I think people have ways of coping. So, yeah, maybe all of the above, Monica. And, and you know, what you're saying about, you know, that creativity. And because I was thinking, you know, that if you had that kind of expression, you know, a growth mindset or a fixed mindset... And, you know, that sort of growth mindset is where you see life as ever evolving and you look for resources um, to to help you to to do that transition. And, and what are the resources that each person finds and how do you look for them? And then that fixed mindset, which is where you think, no, no, you know, I can't grow, I can't develop, I can't develop new resources. This is the way I am. I'm fully developed and, and I'm fully fashioned. I can't change and it's the you know the fact that the world has changed well that's the catastrophe and you know it'll never be the same again and I think it's that I mean I know I'm sort of describing it from the outside but I'm always curious about you know how to help people to move, move from a more fixed mindset to a growth mindset because I think that's what we need when we're going through our transitions in life we need to believe that that this, we're going to get something good out of this. That's right. I agree with you. One of the things I use too is going back to some of the acceptance and commitment stuff and, and sort of talk to people about values and what values they have about predictability, certainty, reliability. And maybe if they've found that, you know, the people, the powers that be don't have predictability, reliability, is this more a, a, a schema type of response where my core beliefs are really challenged. It's like, oh, wow, this just shouldn't have happened, as opposed to just uncertainty per se. So, you know, if we mm. explore people's values around, um, you know, what they expect of themselves and what they expect of others, especially people in leadership or people around them or managers or employers, um, whether that's um, an exploration of values and whether they can see, almost using those mentalisation skills where you're, you know, thinking about my thinking, thinking about their thinking and doing that near mm. and far looking. So I'm thinking this, what would other people be thinking? How does that sit with you? What do you feel? What's going on for you as you're thinking about that person's thinking? Um, and getting people to risk get that seeing, how can I explain it, just to really expand their thinking so that it's open and not blocked by, I can't do this, I can't do this, this is all too hard, rather than being, okay, I can see there's opportunities and possibilities. Um, so, and sometimes, you know, yeah. sitting there, I think, 
shifting it from just the moment to something more deep and meaningful around schemas or values. Um, I found a bit of an in working with people that way. Because I was thinking about, you know, sort of the, the where I get caught up as a as a GP, you know, and, and sort of like where I get stuck and I feel really frustrated and I go, oh, God, I don't think I'm actually helping this person at all. Um, and and it's around sort of when when people can't do that mentalising. Because I was thinking, you know, there's a, there's a guy called Ethan Cross who talked about first, second and third person self-talk. Um, and he says, you know, if I say I am scared, then I'm kind of in it, you know. Um, I can't do anything. I'm in it. If I say, um, you know, second person, um, you know, Monica, you're really scared about this, aren't you? Yeah, I can see you're really scared. You're terrified. Um, and if I look, th- then I'm kind of observing it a bit more. That gives me a little bit more clarity. And it also might help me to see the next step, like what I have to do. It's almost like that question, and I go, you, know, you say to someone, well, what could you do in that situation? And they go, I don't know. You go, well, what would you tell a friend? And then that's kind of like a different perspective, isn't it? We're mm. helping people to like mentalise. Like the third person external from them. Mm. Yeah. So the third person is Monica looks really scared. Yeah. Yeah. But that takes us back to, you know, in the previous episode, we talked about narrative. Mm. That actually takes us up to those thick, rich stories that people bring up. I can't cope, I can't manage. And perhaps us looking outside for exceptions so that we can make richer these thin stories. And what I love about narrative approaches and narrative therapy is that we externalise. So you can actually say, the scared, or when scared comes, so we actually make it separate to the person and see it as, like, if scared was over there on the chair right now, what would that be doing? What would that feel? Where do you feel scared in your body? And if scared was gone, what do you notice? So really allowing that play on that particular emotion that they're getting. So I think that's a useful, exactly like you were doing, which sounds, it links into that first and second order conversation. I've not heard of that before, actually. I might look that up. But um, I think it links nicely in with that um, narrative approach, doesn't it? You're listening to Transitions, a conversation between me, a GP, Monica Moore, and a mental health social worker. And that's me, Julianne White. (laughs) it changes our emotional response, I think. Mm. You know, sort of rather than being in it, you know, it allows us that kind of perspective to sort of see it from the outside. And of course, when we're seeing it as if it's happening to someone else, it's always easier to give advice to someone else than take our own advice. I don't know about you. Yeah, absolutely. That's why, yeah, totally. that's why <laughs> you know, in the previous episode, I was talking about spoon theory and it was, you know, a conversation I had with my daughter when I was exhausted and she was pointing out that I'd just done too much. Mm. Um, you know, so talk about taking my own advice. And and so that's the thing, isn't it? But what, what do you do, Julianne? Actually, Julian? Monica, can I pull you up right just a minute? Yeah. Isn't it beautiful? And just as a reflective, I just love it when our children come back with those isms of of wonder and things that we've handed on to them. They then have integrated it and send it back to us. I just think, I just love it. They're my moments of great, you know, I get great joy from my children when I go, oh, you did listen to me that moment, you know, 25 years ago, and you're using it now (laughs) as part of, and we have a lovely relationship that you can say this to me now and I can go, oh, thank you. I'm glad. It's lovely that we can take that because I remember when my kids were growing up, if I started doing that, oh, so tell me what's happening for you right now, they'd go, don't social work us, mum. I don't want to hear that. And I go, oh, okay. I was actually just talking nicely. <laughs> That's what I found challenging in my, as my children grew up, my transitions. 
was you know, dealing with my children as I was professionally growing professionally and trying to practice stuff on them. Yes, I, I don't, we, we've had we've had those com- you know at my house we've had those conversations too. But it's but it's interesting you say you know where the children come back you know with what you've told them and I think I'd never mentioned spoon theory to her. She's come up with it herself. You know what I mean? But mm. uh, but that's the lovely thing about it. But but it's, it was more about you know when I was thinking about this topic about um, loss of employment through COVID and and loss of the future and you know all these young people who've had to move back home and how that creates mm. conflict in families and yep. relationships that have been getting on okay because of that distance and how difficult that is and how complex that is so um, you know and how can we support so you know as a GP you know I'll be listening to one family member you know complaining about another family member and and how we hold that space, but at the same time, um, you know, hold confidentiality because sometimes it's so easy as a GP to kind of blurt out something someone else said and that's quite difficult, but, you know, we need to do that to maintain those boundaries. Um, but but also that, that thing like my frustration as a GP when someone comes in and they just, like, no matter what I do, I can't seem to be able to help them to transition. You know what I mean? Like they're sort of stuck. Mm. Um, yep. And I, I as, a, as, as someone, you know, working in that space, I, I kind of find it really difficult. And what can, what can we do as clinicians for ourselves when someone is actually a bit stuck? What, what, what works mm. for you? What helps for you? Oh, I actually say back to them, you know what I'm noticing right here now is that we're stuck. What do you think it looks like mm. when we're stuck? I actually st- stick with stuck. So you actually name it. Yeah, name it and say, look, I don't think we're, we're finding the right link here. What's missing is the link. So, and I sit with people mm. and do that. Oh, I'm curious right now. Um, what's, what's stopping us finding the next stage and the next transition we need to move into the next thing that we need to find. What do you think? So I, I do this curiosity with them and go, I'm just at a bit of a loss now. I don't, I'm really, I'm pulling all the tricks out of my bag and I don't know what next to do. What do you think we could do right now? I've even had people sit there and go, well, mm. I don't know. You're the expert. You tell me. And I say, well, look, what I think, and I might just go, <laughs> yeah, you know, you love that one. But I've got some cards and I've got things and um, like little props around me that I can quickly reach into my little basket. I've actually got some juggling things and I've got some little metaphor images and I've got some um, nice little soft emotion things and I might grab something and just change the subject and go, look, what I think might be useful now is let's do some mindfulness. And, you know, the other day I did some juggling using scarves, which a colleague has taught me. I can do, I don't think juggling is two scarves, but I can do juggling with two scarves. I think if I had did three, I'd be juggling. Anyway, what I love about about it is you go throw, throw, catch, catch, and then you do your breathing. So, so let's just do some breathing and let's just do this activity and then we'll come back and see if we're still stuck. And I'm finding that as a really nice segue um, to people to move from being stuck and then trying to find words. And I know that must be hard in a GP clinic. I could just see that if you yeah, got I'm just to just imagining as a GP, I have some scarves here for you and I just I want you to scarves. throw them from hand to hand. <laughs> just, and I go, yeah, she's yeah. weird. <laughs> Monica's on the edge. She's just not going, looped Not right going over. back to that one again. Yeah. <laughs> um, look, with, yeah. They probably I, expect it from me. <laughs> That is why we have referral pathways, isn't it? And we have clinicians with expertise. <laughs> thank God for that. Yep. <laughs> thank God for that. Yeah. 
So if you yeah. want to send someone to me and they can do some dodgy, you know, sort of juggling thing, then, uh, but look, I look has been amazing. So hokey. And yeah. I went, yeah, and I went to Lincraft the other day and had to buy a heap of fabric that was like $30 a metre so I could make my own scarves because I've given away about, oh. you know, just uh, everybody says, oh, can I have some of those to take home? And I'm like, yeah, okay. <laughs> I'll just buy some more. Um, right then. Yeah. Okay. And it's been really remarkable. So you, so you hand out little transition objects, do you? You know, like like a teddy bear is a transition object, so you kind of go, here, there's your, there's your little transition And I'll give object. you the third okay. one, and if you can come back to me next session with him, juggle the third, so you do catch, 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 throw, throw. <laughs> and look, the children, right. love, and some of the adults find it useful, so they haven't actually come okay. back and said, I'm now an expert at juggling, but the children are finding it, the younger ones around the 12, 8 to 12-year-olds are really enjoying it. So, And I do have to improve my technique a little. I've got to learn how to catch that third scarf. <laughs> I'll show you one you day. actually juggle. Mm. Yeah, oh, fascinating. Mm. Okay. No, because I think mm. it's all kind of relevant in the fact that, you know, mm. what we're talking, you know, what I was sort of musing about in terms of, you know, when people lose their jobs, because I, I have a neighbour or had a neighbour who, when Ansett folded, um, he had three young kids and he just picked up and got a job as a baggage handler. I mean, his previous position had been a highly paid engineering sort of job. Um, and he kept food on the table by doing that. And it was such a resilient and uh, practical thing to do rather than, um, you know, folding and, and and collapsing. And I really admired that. And I was like, what is it? And, and I was thinking about all the sort of the forces. It's not just genetic, you know, some of us are genetically less flexible perhaps or, you know, genetically more pessimistic or I don't know, um, maybe a little bit more prone to believing things that aren't based on reality. By that I mean, like I've had patients who've said, no, COVID isn't actually a virus. Um, it's actually the influence of 5G radiation and so I don't want the vaccine. And, you know, as a GP, it's so difficult to stay calm and stay present and to work with someone, you know what I mean? And, yeah, and, yeah, that and is who has really that tricky. Reaction. Well, for me anyway, okay, mm. for Monica, the GP, I find it very difficult to stay calm. And and so, you know, is that a genetic thing? Is it is it because mm. of the way they were brought and beliefs they were picked up? But also there's all that kind of environmental stuff, like the media sort of broadcasting all of these, um, you know, sort of unsupported things. And I was amazed at how, uh, you know, with what was happening in the United States, that the social um, platforms, you know, decided to actually block some of the misinformation that was being spread around. I thought, whoa. I wonder whether, Mm. you know, that will continue because, um, you know, certainly as a GP, it would be great to have that misinformation blocked. And I think it would help people, you know, especially when they they spread misinformation about, you know, jobs or anything like that. It would help people to have hope um, that it's not always going to be like this, that people do recover, that, you know, economies do recover. And, and that there might be some benefits, you know, like working from home and having more of a life and less of a commute might actually be a benefit. Absolutely, yeah. And look, 
conversations we've had around our rural communities have been that, yes, there's been some incredible hardships, particularly, you know, in hospitality mm. and some of the more service organisations, but the blessings that have actually also come out that, you know, just to talk to people about, you know, yes, there's been these incredible losses and sit with these losses, but slowly let them see the blessings. You know, so many businesses have just so benefited from JobKeeper, you know, some of the government initiatives that have helped businesses survive this period, which has, you know, also been something so that they can rebrand or redo something. And um, But we have noticed, it's really interesting, our housing market where we live has just gone through the roof because the word is out that people can work from home. And so houses are just being, you know, people have, well, which is lovely because we've had people move into our communities from places afar. Um, and it's been, the word is that people are looking to put their houses out there because people will move to the rural areas because we can work from home. And my son-in-law, daughter and son-in-law, were just recently moved from Melbourne back to the rural area because he can now work from home and now they can come back close to family, which I just think... And so they're looking at houses was to make sure there was a home office and good internet so that they could work from home. So there's been change... And I think yeah, we can't diminish the distress and the the devastation for a lot of families that, you know, have just got no income um, or very limited income, but there are some other people that have been able to manage this change in, in unique and creative ways. Mm, mm. How, how people do that, um, you know, like I said, we t- talked about before, is it nature or nurture? Is it previous experiences when there's been change and they've had this, this um, schema develop around nothing good comes from it, I can't possibly cope? Um, so whether, I don't know, I don't know if anyone sort of mm. looked into what makes people more resilient. Is it a life stage, you know, if we, we're better when we're younger or different when we're older? I don't know. That's it. I think it's, mm. I think it's that thing about it being multifactorial and I was also thinking about those cultural yeah. and society expectations that, um, you know, one of the lovely things about um, working from home is that traditionally, you know, sort of women do the, the bulk of housework and, um, and caring for children and men, you know, go out to the office and work and having to work from home, that, that in some families there's been a readjustment that is a much more equal readjustment and, you know, whereas in other families, of course, it's just, you know, created huge problems. But, you know, is it possible as a result of this that there will be a move forward, you know, like Annabelle Crabb wrote in her book, The Wife Drought, you know, that there will be no longer a wife drought because partners will be sharing equally in these tasks. Um, and so they'll both have the power um, and they'll both have the support. Because I think, wouldn't that be lovely? I mean, I see it playing out, um, you know, with my own, my own son and his partner, you know, that they're so lovely together. It's a joy to see, but it's not always like that. But I'm, I'm hopeful that as a change that that will help. Yeah, I agree with you, Monica, and it's be interesting to see in some, because I think some have also struggled with that, having, especially with homeschooling, when kids were in the home and both parents were working from home, created quite a bit of distress. So it'll be interesting how this plays out. And I think how we will then, as clinicians and the helpers, um, be very open to this um, perceived distress that people have got. So, but one thing I wanted to bring up, Monica, you know, while we're talking about this, is that um, as a business owner and as a um, you know, someone who's caring not only for in the helping profession but my own staff, is making sure that they can work from home safely 
And we've had to put a lot of policies and procedures. Um, you know, we actually said at work the other day that if we didn't have COVID, it would have taken us five years to uh, implement the right procedures and policies and talk about it and have management meetings and WHS stuff. We had to do this fast and we all had to stop what we were doing and make sure our staff were safe and that they were well supported and that, like I spent a lot of time every day ringing into everybody that worked from home, make sure everybody had good IT, they could Zoom their clients. Then we all had to check in with our clients to make sure they were comfortable with Zoom or phone calls. And, you know, so our admin staff were doing extra hours, you know, checking in with people and setting them up with Zoom would take at least 20 minutes per family to set them up originally. Then checking in with the, that people had confidentiality and privacy. And it was really as a manager, really tricky to ensure that not only did I do my own work, but I covered those bases and made sure people were safe. Did that impact on your work at all? Look, because I don't employ anyone, um, you know, the changes were more related to my own workspace and having to work from home. But in terms of... um, uh, because I, I don't work in a GP office at the moment, but I'm just thinking about, um, you know, sort of my husband and and all the other colleagues and friends that I've got who are GPs and how um, it was, you know, yes, telehealth was uh, an option, but as a GP, you actually have to see people sometimes. And how um, initially um, my husband would come home and say, I think I'm going to have to retire because no one's coming in. Because they were all terrified they were going to catch the plague from the, yeah. And so we we had some moments where we thought, well, maybe now is, uh, yeah, we pulled the plug. Maybe it's the time. Um, And we become a single income family, yeah. Um, Because there was such terror about, you know, GP practices being a source of infection. And, of course, all Mm. that stuff about PPE and not being available and where do you source it and where do you source it both legally and reliably and can depend on it. Um, And, uh, you know, I've got colleagues in the rural areas and, uh, you know, sort of there were some problems with deliveries and it was very, very stressful for everyone concerned. And, uh, you know, the the GPs were struggling to maintain both uh, their own workloads in terms of, uh, you know, because they were still having to do things as a GP in the isolated areas, but uh, they don't have the hospitals. And then the fear from from the, you know, my colleagues who work in hospitals, you know, that they would, what was happening overseas, you know, that because of a lack mm. of knowledge about the virus that they would catch it and die as well. And so it was a time of terror um, and and such big change and, and uh, you know, and adapting like me, learning how to use Zoom and teaching others mm. how to do it. I think I've came off very lightly really, um, but, you know, because I didn't have to manage a practice, but my colleagues certainly described it as, as uh, you know, increased tensions and increased tensions between um, people working in the practice because you'd have different perspectives about whether to take it seriously or not initially. And that was really difficult. Like, you know, even though you're a doctor, you don't always recognise the severity of the situation first off. Um, And so there were conflicts within um, multiple doctor practices and that was really difficult for them as well. Look, and I had some days where I was seeing 
uh, you know, sort of six or seven uh, Zoom sessions, one back to back, like I do two full clinical mm. days. And I was, my eyes were exhausted and I found the level of my concentration really quite hard. And a lot yeah. of my colleagues were saying the same things that were doing repeated Zoom calls. And, you know, and there's a, a sense of that urgency between Zoom calls. You've got to start on time, finish on time, make sure the content's, um, yeah. you know, real and practical, try and get resources up there. And, you know, I found that I was doing my hands in the air a lot. So I was really active in the session. Whereas often if I'm sitting with someone, I'm quite relaxed. I can sit back. I've got my, you know, my nice couches and a nice environment. Uh, I, I found it quite exhausting and, and really found by the end of the day and the week that I didn't have that mental space to uh, even do notes and then follow up with letters. So that, that became a bit of a mm. challenge. Um, yeah, so mm, I think mm. as the transitions have affected uh, people in, you know, gaining employment or losing employment or changing employment, um, you know, I think just those maintaining employment, shifting how they do work is really mm. um, quite difficult. Uh, you know, I've got quite a few children that work in hospitality and uh, and they've struggled. You know, their whole business structure has changed. So that's been interesting to watch it just from a personal level as well. And, you know, we've had to, you know, financially support quite a few of our kids just to, um, through some of this time, um, which has been quite challenging. But, but yeah. That's how we do transitions, isn't it? You know, sort of yeah, the good and the bad. That's, that's how we do transitions. So hopefully we've had a chance to really explore some of those. Of course we have. Of course we have. But look, uh, Gillian, I think, you know, we're never going to cover everything. And so we hope you've enjoyed um, this episode of Transitions. And next time, Julianne is going to be holding the fort. So over to you, Gillian. Oh, thanks, Monica. And look, I'm so excited. A beautiful colleague of mine, Matthew Povey, who's a, a talented trauma clinician and doing his um, social work degree, um, has been working actually in the bushfire region around the Alpine region here in northeast and New South Wales. And he is going to be talking with me around... Uh, just how what we're seeing on the ground in the bushfire region, the fact that he's on the ground doing this work and that cumulative impact of COVID and bushfires and other, how it impacts on the work that we're doing and what Matthew's doing. So I'm so excited about bringing him in and so is Matthew actually. He's just a great conversationalist. So it's going to be great. And your next episode too is going to be so cool. I can't wait to hear that one, Monica. Oh, yes, yes. So I'll be talking to Dr Martina Gleeson, who's a GP with a special interest in transgender issues um, and so that will be episode four. Very much looking forward to, to doing that as well, having that conversation, because we learn so much from each other. And so if you have any comments, there are any topics you'd like us to discuss, we'd really love to hear from you. Any comments of something that we've got wrong or left out would be great as well, because it's great to talk to someone from um, another discipline and to hear and gain different perspectives. And all you have to do is click on the link in the show notes and goodbye from me, Monica Moore. And goodbye from me, Julianne White, from sunny, rural New South Wales. Bye for now. And look, remember to send us your comments, your thoughts. Okay, just click on that link. Visit mhpn.org.au to find out more about our online professional program, including podcasts, webinars, as well as our face-to-face -face interdisciplinary mental health networks across Australia. 